please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to keep them open to Psalm 16 as we walk through it together. Let me say again, happy Resurrection Sunday. It is good to see all of you this morning, and it is good to worship with you as we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we have a lasting hope and a secure future. That's what Easter is, really, and why it is the most significant and consequential event in the history of the world. The morning that a few women, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, Jesus' mother, walked to Jesus' tomb, expecting to see it sealed and guarded and silent. Instead, what they saw was an unsealed tomb, which the Roman guards had fled and angels telling them that Christ had risen from death. Where they expected to grieve, they suddenly had cause to celebrate to rejoice and to run and tell this good news to others who were mourning. Their friend and teacher, they now realized, was the one with the power to conquer death itself, to put death itself to death, and to lead his people into the promise of God. This morning, as we look at a passage of Scripture written about a thousand years before those women discovered the empty tomb, this is the hope that we are invited to consider and receive by faith. If Christ is your king, this is a reminder to you. Psalm 16 is a reminder to you that he is alive, interceding for you in the presence of his Father and ruling over your life even this very moment with mercy and compassion. If you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. And secondly, I invite you to consider whether the God of the heavens and earth, who rules over the cosmos and the moving of atoms alike, is speaking directly to you this morning, to reveal his love 
and the hope of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, who sheds his blood for the salvation of his people and who claims victory over death, forever reigning in grace for our good and his glory. This is the promise revealed in an empty tomb 2,000 years ago on a hillside outside Jerusalem, and it is the joy of God's people. So let's pray together as we open Psalm 16. God, we are thankful to be here, to be gathered together, because we know that it is a work of your mercy to call your people and to unite them under the lordship of Christ. Lord, we, we, we are united under the lordship of a risen and reigning king, and so we have great unquenchable hope. We pray that you would press that hope into our hearts this morning, that our lives would be shaped by it, and that we would respond to you with praise. We pray these things, Lord, with joy and in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I'm sure some of you read the novel The Death of Ivan Illich in high school, but in case you didn't, or in case you've forgotten it, it tells the story of a man named Ivan who obsesses over trying to have the most luxurious life that he can. And he does. He's successful. He's able to have a life that others envy as a successful lawyer. But one day he falls and he injures himself, and before long the injury is revealed to be serious and life-threatening. He consults with the best doctors. He tries to deny how serious his condition really is, but things get worse and worse and worse until he finally faces the fact that he is going to die. And that realization crushes him. He collapses into an existence that is defined only by fear and self-pity and searing anger at the unfairness of his situation. The book is remembered as one of the greatest and most honest novels ever written because of the way it describes a fear that is shared by all of humanity, the type of situation that causes us to face the fact that life truly is, as Scripture defines it, a vapor that exists for a moment and then vanishes. It's the sort of experience that produced Psalm 16, which we're looking at this morning. Immediately, the first thing we notice when we turn to read this psalm is that David, the author, is in the middle of some sort of crisis. We aren't told any details. We only see that he is crying out for help. Preserve me, O God, he says in verse 1, for in you I take refuge. Something is wrong. That's all we know for sure. Psalm 16 is a poem, perhaps written to be sung in the temple in Jerusalem. David, as the king of Israel, wrote many of the psalms that we have in the Bible and intended many of them to be helpful to the people of his nation in their worship, giving words to their joy, their sorrow, their fear, and their dependence on God. And it seems like that's what's happening here. David doesn't give any detail about what crisis he's facing, and the reason for that is probably that he wanted this poem to be as broadly applicable as possible. If he had written, Preserve me, O God, for as king I am attacked by those who want to steal the throne, that would have been a different sort of prayer, an important historical record, but not the sort of prayer that the average person in Israel could sing for themselves. He leaves things vague 
probably because he wants this psalm to be the song of any of God's people when they find themselves in a crisis. A song that they can sing to declare their own dependence on God, seeking His faithfulness and trusting in the promises that He has made them for their deliverance, no matter the trial that they face. But even though we don't know all that much about the circumstances behind Psalm 16 or the, you know, the details that occasioned Paul to cry out, preserve me, O God, verse 10 suggests to us that it is a life-threatening situation. David writes, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol was the ancient Jewish concept of the realm of death, and corruption refers to the physical decay that occurs after death. So while we don't know all that much about the specifics of the situation that prompted David to cry out, preserve me, O God, we know that it was a matter of mortal danger and that the stakes could not possibly have been higher. There are lots of situations from David's life that we do know about that fit this description. He found himself in life-threatening situations rather frequently. During his childhood as a shepherd, he fought lions and bears to protect his flock. Before he became the king, he was hunted by his predecessor who was insane and tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Once he became king, he was often at war and was surrounded by nations who sought his life. And at one point, David's own son tried to kill him and seize the throne, and David was forced to flee the city. So it's hard to narrow down exactly when he would have written Psalm 16, because there are just so many situations that he found himself in in which he was crying out, preserve me, O God. But that seems to be the way that David intended it, so that anyone in crisis could turn to this song and sing it in the hope of God's deliverance and as an encouragement to trust in God even when it seems like all will be lost. That's what he does in this passage, and it's amazing how quickly David turns from crisis to confidence. Within just a few verses of the opening, with a desperate plea for protection, he will say in verse 8, I will not be shaken. No matter what threat I face, What danger or disaster befalls me, no matter what tragedy or injustice I endure, I will stand. How can someone move so quickly from crisis to confidence? What keeps David from collapsing into despair like Ivan? The answer is in knowing God. He looks back and remembers the ways that God has already displayed His kindness and His faithfulness. And that is, what is, that is what enables him to face whatever situation he's looking at now with confidence and even to look to an unknown future and say that he will not be shaken. I've seen that sort of thing play out recently, though on a much smaller scale. A few months ago, my wife and I enrolled our young son in swimming lessons. At first, he was super nervous, afraid of the water. But Jess has always been there with him and a few months have gone by, and now he's more confident. He's, he's more comfortable swimming in the water, not because he knows how to swim. He is just as helpless as the, day, the first day that he set foot in a swimming pool. But he knows that mom will be there to help him and to keep him safe. He's seen her prove it. So now he's more comfortable and confident in the water than he was at first. David, looking backward, sees God's kindness and provision. 
And that experience shapes the way he looks at whatever situation he's facing now, however it might turn out, and how he looks at the future. We see that in the way that this psalm is written, in the structure that fits into two parts. In verses 1 through 6, David explains why he trusts in God during this crisis. And then in verses 7 through 11, he looks to the future, trusting God with whatever will come next. In it all, he's confident. David begins in verse 2 to explain his commitment to God. He declares, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Literally, the Hebrew here says, nothing is good over or above you. The idea is that he knows that God is the greatest good he has in life, and that without God, nothing that he has is good. For a man in crisis who is potentially facing death, that's a serious thing to say. And it is a compelling reminder to us. When we find ourselves in crisis, we typically pray for deliverance from the crisis itself. We pray for health when we are sick, relief when we are stressed, financial lifelines when we are struggling to pay the bills, restoration when we are afflicted and heartbroken. And we pray these things rightly because God loves us and tells us to bring our fears and our anxieties to Him. He is a good Father who cares for His people and longs to carry our burdens. But that is not the prayer that David is modeling for us in this psalm. He does not say, Lord, my life is threatened. Deliver me from this danger and set me on solid ground. That would be a good, biblical, God-honoring prayer. But it is not what he says. Instead, he says, there is nothing I might have in this world that is better than you. Why would he say that? Elsewhere, David prays for deliverance and for protection and even for the defeat of his enemies. Why not pray that here? The answer may be in the specific crisis that he's facing, but since he does not explain to us what that is, and since he evidently intended this psalm to be useful to people in their own worship and whatever situation they may find themselves in, it seems like the goal here is to instruct readers to remember that no matter what we might gain or lose in this life, and that even if we lose life itself, nothing, nothing could be better for us than to be known and loved by God. He acknowledges that there will be temptation to think otherwise. He contrasts people that he calls saints in verse 3, in whom he delights, those who honor God and who look to him for hope, with those he describes in verse 4 as people who run after other gods. There are those who rest in the supreme goodness of God and in his love for his people, who David calls saints or, or uh, that could be translated noble ones. And there are those, desperate and fearful, who look to idols for the safety that they long for. The noble ones are noble because fear does not overwhelm them. They endure calamity and they rely on the Lord, come what may. But David knows that many in his city and in his nation, though they have seen God's provision with their own eyes, will make offerings of blood and will worship at the feet of false gods. Faced with danger, they will take the expedient path rather than the one that honors God by giving him the chance to display his power and his compassion. In antiquity, 
The expedient path often took the form of literal physical idols carved from wood and stone that promised bountiful harvests and fertility and monetary windfalls and other blessings. Today, the expedient path is no longer carved from wood and stone, but they are idols all the same. Here's an example of what I mean. When money is tight in our families, perhaps because the loss of a job or inflation that is setting records this year, we adjust the budget. Maybe we decide to put off a big purchase or even give up a family vacation. But a situation like that can easily and often does lead to pressure that might make us look for an easier way out. So the expedient route might be to fudge a few details on the expense report at work or a tax return. It might be to neglect giving to the Lord's work. And if the situation is dire enough, it might mean something more drastic than that. When pressure rises, the tendency that we all feel is to look for the expedient, convenient, and least painful way to get relief. It was true in antiquity, and it is true today. The temptation to turn from God in favor of an easier path has always been there. But David will not go there. Even in the face of a threat to his life, he will not go there. He won't even speak the names of those false gods. Instead, he looks to Yahweh and says, you are my chosen portion and my cup. He has utter confidence in God. Portion and cup are words that literally refer to food on the table, the most basic of needs. And for David, the most basic need is God Himself. What he needs to survive is not a feast for an empty stomach, it is peace for a troubled soul that comes with remembering the kindness of God. So chasing after other gods only multiplies sorrows, but you hold my lot, David says. You control everything, and I trust you with everything. Casting lots was a way of determining something by chance, like rolling dice or drawing straws. But David knows nothing is left to chance. All is in the hand of God. David knows if, if I have food to eat tomorrow, it will be because of your sovereign will. If I am on the throne tomorrow, it will be because of your sovereign will. If I live to see tomorrow, it will be because of your sovereign will. Tomorrow is firmly in the hand of God. And that is good news that causes David to rejoice because he has seen God prove himself over and over and over again, prove that he is faithful and gracious and able to bless his people. In verse 6, David uses language chosen to remind everyone reading this psalm of God's faithfulness, of the proof that David sees of God's kindness and the reason that it is a cause to rejoice that he holds tomorrow in his hand. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he says. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's talking about the way that God led his people into the land that they now call home. There's subtle lexical clues in that verse that point us back to God's provision of this land that they now call home. David is remembering his people's history, which began centuries before when God made two promises to a man named Abraham, that his descendants would one day be so numerous that they would be a nation raised up by God to bless the entire world, 
and that He would give these people a land of their own, a home and an inheritance. Hundreds of years later, after He brought Abraham's descendants out of slavery in Egypt, they were no longer a small family but a nation of millions. So that was one promise kept. But in the time that had passed, other people had settled in the land that God had sworn to give to His people. They built cities, they established nations, and they trained armies for war. So that was a problem. The people wondered how God was going to keep His promise, or if He would at all. When they saw the inhabitants of this land that they had been promised, they were afraid. Most of them wanted to run in the other direction. They didn't want anything to do with the people who lived there because those people were fearsome and strong and intimidating. They were fighters. They were violent. And they did terrible things like practice child sacrifice. And that terrified the people of Israel. And it also enraged God. So when the time came, He brought His people to conquer their cities and bring His judgment The Israelites, who had never had an army before, who had no training or experience with war, they saw cities crumble, and God kept His second promise. Now, David is sitting on a throne in the capital of Israel, in the land that God had promised to His people centuries before as an inheritance, and he remembers that God is faithful. The city, out His window, is the proof. And remembering that, he's able to look forward with great confidence that no matter what comes next, God will remain faithful. We see that in a subtle grammatical shift that begins in verse 7, though some English translations make that shift a little harder to see than others. David spends the rest of the psalm looking to the future, ready to meet whatever may come, knowing that God will see him through it all. If you're reading the English Standard Version like I am this morning or like we had on the slides earlier, verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. But most English translations of that verse say something like, I will bless the Lord or I will worship the Lord or I will praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that verb and five more in the verses that follow are in a tense that describe actions that are either ongoing or will take place in the future, because David is looking beyond this crisis. He's looking beyond whatever threat he's facing right now. No matter what happens, I will praise the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs me, which is to say that he will continually remind himself of God's faithfulness. He will never turn away from it. He will always praise God for it. I have set the Lord always before me, he says, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Real, lasting confidence is a rare thing. Who among us can say and back up a claim like this, that whatever happens tomorrow, I will not be shaken? Any of us could say those words but who could back them up? What's the secret to this courage that we see here and throughout church history in the lives and deaths of martyrs who gave their lives with confidence for the sake of the fledgling church, missionaries who shed their blood for the sake of the the glory of God among the lost, and Christians in countries even today where it is illegal to joyfully praise God who endure abuse and imprisonment and do so with joy? How can anyone in the face of death itself say, no matter what, 
I will not be shaken. The answer is in these final three verses, which we read in whole. Therefore, my heart is glad, David says, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh will also dwell secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In these three verses, David makes a bold claim that is grounded in two firmly held beliefs. I rejoice, he says, with gladness and security, because even if I die, I will not be abandoned, and because you will lead me to life and into your very presence. That is the confidence that David has in what the future will hold for him and all who hold fast to God's faithfulness. For ancient Israel, this was an absolutely unprecedented hope. Sheol was the realm of death, we've already said, from which there could be no return. Job 17 explains that he who goes down to Sheol does not come up again. It is a one-way ticket. People do not come back from the dead. Yet, David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. As in, even if I die, you will be faithful to me. Even if this crisis ends in disaster, there you will be with me. You will lead me out on the path of life, which leads to your very presence. David is not being merely brave here. He is setting his hope on the one who has proven his miraculous, sovereign, gracious capacity to keep all of his promises and show kindness to his people, no matter how improbable or impossible it may seem for him to do so. So even as he endures whatever fearsome situation he was in when he wrote this poem, he is able to say, my whole being rejoices. There's not a shred of who I am that is not joyful in this moment. That sort of joy in the midst of suffering is an extraordinary thing. Like when the apostles were arrested and beaten for preaching about Jesus in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5, and afterward they rejoiced, not that they survived, but that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. It's that sort of behavior that makes people wonder if someone has lost their mind. How could anyone rejoice in such circumstances unless they have something that is more valuable to them than their own health or their freedom or even their lives, a promise that is more sure than anything else that they could build their lives on. It's that sort of joy that comes with knowing that God will never let you go. David looked back and he saw God's faithfulness. Then he looked ahead knowing that God would remain faithful. So when he was faced with a crisis, a life-threatening situation, he did not collapse in despair, nor did he put on false courage. He faced it and knew that no matter what, God would sustain him, even if he lost his life. It was a hope that David gave to his people, a song for them to sing, confident in the saving work of God and dependent on him to go to Sheol to lead them out again. But then David died. After ruling for four decades, he was buried in Jerusalem, and his body turned to dust, and all of his hopes seemed to go unanswered. The nation that he ruled was split by civil war. His people 
descended further and further into idolatry, abandoning God and doing the same wicked things that he had judged in the past by sending these very people to lay waste to the cities that they now inhabit. I wonder what people thought of David's hopeful psalm when they walked past his grave centuries after he was laid in it. David's faith, it seemed, was overconfident because God had not saved him after all. But then everything changed. Almost a thousand years after David was buried, in the life and death of a man born in the city of David, all of God's promises were kept, and all of David's hopes were fulfilled, and all of God's people were set free from chains of sin and from death itself. Maybe you're wondering this morning why we're spending all this time on Psalm 16. I mean, it is Easter, after all. Shouldn't we be reading about Jesus about how he died, about how he was buried, and then miraculously conquered death itself? Shouldn't we be reading a passage that actually mentions Jesus, that's about the resurrection? I mean, since it is Easter and all. And I say, yes, of course. I could not agree with you more. And that's why we're taking a closer look at Psalm 16 this morning, because it is all about Jesus, and specifically about the day that he walked out of the tomb. I know that because the New Testament points to this psalm as a promise from God that the Savior of God's people would die and then be resurrected, and that through his death and resurrection, he would save the world. When Peter was giving the very first sermon in the first ever gathering of the brand new Christian church in Jerusalem, he explained that all the hopes of every promise and every prophecy of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he says in Acts 2 that after Jesus died, according to God's plan of salvation, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make full of gladness. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter explains these words. They could not have been about David because David died. He was buried, and in the ground, he turned to dust. But that David wrote these words to be fulfilled by one who would come after him and who would answer all of his hopes in God's kindness, and that because of Psalm 16, it was impossible for death to keep its grip on Jesus. Psalm 16 is ultimately about Jesus, but it was for David, and it is for us. It is a promise of salvation that God makes and God keeps in the sacrificial death of His Son and the victorious resurrection that took place three days later. David wrote these words with confidence, though not confidence in himself. He knew his failures. He was honest about his sin. He grieved over the ways his actions had devastated the lives of others, and he knew that he was justly condemned by a holy judge. But he wrote in hope that God would be merciful. 
that though he deserved eternity in the realm of death, God would make a way for David and others to trust in the forgiveness of God and to bring it about. And as he did, he wrote about a Savior who wouldn't arrive for a thousand years. Psalm 16 is a promise delivered by God through David to a people who had failed to honor him, who deserved judgment, but to whom he would be merciful. And that promise was kept in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. So when Peter stood to proclaim the good news that God's salvation had come, he turned to Psalm 16 to make the point that God had made this promise long ago, that he was faithful to keep it, and that now we can live with the confidence that we see in David's words. In these ancient lines, Peter saw fear wiped away, he saw longings answered, and he saw salvation poured out, because Jesus is the one who went to the grave and then walked out again. This was not plan B. It wasn't a backup plan. It was God's promise, outlined in the words of Scripture, a thousand years before he came in the flesh to keep his word. And it is the reason that God's people can meet trial and even death itself with hope and confidence. This is the good news of the gospel. God's son was born, he lived and died and rose again to exchange his life for yours. If he is your king, know that he is alive and rejoice. Nothing in this world or any world could overwhelm or disrupt his love for you or the everlasting life that he has won for you. He has defeated every enemy, cast down every accuser, and reigns in compassion for you. Meet trials that come into your life with joy, knowing that his saving work is done and that even if everything else is lost, there is no good above him and nothing could divide you from him. If you do not know Jesus by faith or you aren't sure or you have questions, I invite you to stick around after the worship service is done and find someone to talk to Hear the good news. Believe and rest in this confident resurrection hope. Christ is the fulfillment of our longing. He is the keeper of all of God's promises. He has gone to the grave to set prisoners free, to atone for sin, and to lead His people into new life. So our our confidence this morning and every day is not in our own ability to meet whatever struggles we will face in this world, but in Him, the one who has conquered the grave. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray this morning with joy in all circumstances, joy that overflows in words of praise and thanksgiving. Your Son has come, He died, and He rose again, and He welcomes us into Your presence. Death could not hold Him, Sheol could not contain him because you are faithful and gracious. So we set our hope on this gospel. Draw us near and strengthen us for the the day that is dark and when the way is hard. Cause us to remember the promise of salvation made in days long past and kept in the death and victorious resurrection of your Son and our Savior.